Hello, I am Bob Mooney. I am a Bible teacher in the local body of Christ, and I have been an interim pastor of a home church for a number of years. I hope you find these Bible lessons a blessing and of practical value. Well, this is our seventh lesson in studying the lessons of First John. And today we'll look at the moral and social tests. We'll look at our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. But first I want to review of lesson six. And we ended our last lesson with a quote from Dr. Ian Bond. Christianity is the only religion which, by emphasizing that God is light, first insists on taking sin seriously and then offers a satisfactory moral solution to the problem of sin. The way to have fellowship with a God who is light is not to deny the fact or the effects of sin, but to confess our sins and thankfully appropriate God's provision for our cleansing. Well, our text today comes from 1 John second chapter, verses 1-6. through six. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We need to remember who John is writing to and why. He is writing to the church and warning them against false teachers. False teachers who claim that that sinlessness was possible. Again, John here refutes this heresy. However, and just as important, he lets the church know that in no uncertain terms that sin or living a sin-filled life is not characteristic of a believer. But if we do sin, if we miss the mark of God's standard, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Our aim and our desire should be that we hit the bullseye of God's commandments. But for those times that we do fail, we have forgiveness through the Son. So the two extremes here, complacency towards sin and claiming that we don't sin, and despair and hopelessness because we're overwhelmed by our failures, those two extremes are avoided. Sin is not a characteristic of a true believer. That is not to say it doesn't happen occasionally, just it's not a habitual way of life. And John goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Those who live habitual, sinful lives are liars because the reality, the truth of who God is, is not in them. But those who obey his word are made complete in him. While verse 4 is necessary and true, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person, let us concentrate on verse 5. 
If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. If we want to be made complete in him, two things must take place. We must obey the word of God. And in order to do that, we must study and read his word and apply it to our own lives. After all, how can we obey what we don't know or understand? And two, we must live as Jesus did. How do we know how Jesus lived? Again, we read his word. These two principles go hand in hand. John Stott, in his commentary of 1 John, wrote, True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. The proof of love is loyalty. Real love is prepared to make promises. For those of us who were married, we took the wedding vows. For better or worse, for sickness and in health. And when love is separated from this commitment, from the civil law, separated from our vows, it becomes, oh, now I love someone else. It is not that God loves us only when we are obedient, but we are obedient because we love him. God loves us, and there's nothing we can do about it. He can't love us any more than he already does, and he won't love us any less. It is out of our love for him that we have a moral change in our lives. It is not an an obedience out of obligation, but an obedience out of our love for the Father. Well, let's continue with verses 7 through 11. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven and through 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. To love God and to love our neighbors are two sides of the same coin. You can't love your neighbor without loving God. And the love of God is manifested in loving our neighbors. We have to remember, love here is both, in both cases, is agape. A love that comes from the will, not affection or emotion. Why is this important? Well, loving God often comes much easier because he first loves us. He cares for us and he delivers us. So it is easy to return that. But loving our neighbor, and more specifically our Christian brothers and sisters, can be much more difficult and not something that we naturally do. Often it takes an act of our will to follow God's direction to actively love someone else. Our love for God should motivate us to acts of service, to acts of kindness and love. Again, we cannot truly love our neighbor without first loving God. And our love for God inspires us 
to acts of love. In Galatians 6.10, Paul puts it this way, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 2.17, Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote, Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as a Christian concept of God. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he goes on to say, Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And let me point out that when he says costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. I don't believe he means our personal salvation must be asked for and sought again and again. I believe he means that our relationship with the Father through Christ is something that, we, that must be sought again and again. It is not a one-time event, but an ongoing relationship, and one that will last for eternity. John Stott wrote that being a Christian consists in essence of a personal relationship to God in Christ Jesus. Knowing Him, loving Him, and living in Him as the branch lives in the vine. This is the meaning of eternal life. F.F. F. Bruce wrote, John characteristically sees life in terms of black and white. Intermediate grays have no existence for him. So there is no middle course between love and hatred. And by hatred, he does not necessarily mean positive animosity, but a mere lack of love. Lack of love, including that form which postpones an act of charity to a more convenient season, can blind a man's spiritual vision as effectively as the prejudice arising from hatred does so that he is tripped up by all kinds of moral obstacles that lie in life's way and is disabled from forming ethical decisions which are crystal clear to his brother whose love of heart and hand maintains him in fellowship with God and whose light he sees light. What Bruce is saying here, in other words, if we walk in darkness, we become blinded. And in that state, we make poor decisions and this causes many self-inflicted problems in our lives. Often we wrongly blame God for our actions in these dark times when all we need to do is repent and change our hearts and walk in the light. It is in the light we can see clearly and make moral and ethical godly decisions. We must never allow ourselves to become complacent and quote-unquote satisfied where we are in Christ. Content? Yes. 
but we must remain in the vine. For once we become complacent, we separate ourselves from the vine and eventually we shrivel up and die. I want to be a fat, juicy grape, not a raisin. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let us continue to live and to love as Jesus did and become the fattest, juiciest grape we can be. I hope you have been blessed by this message. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at rmooney at carolina.rr.com. And thank you for listening.